0: from the book of Isaiah, Prophet Isaiah. You can find that on page 600 of your pew Bibles. We'll be reading verses 12 through 17, continuing to focus on the character of our God. Hear now the word of the Lord. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You could get no further from this passage we've just read together in Isaiah 40 and the current society and church in which we live where our preoccupations very often are the exact opposite of those that we find unfolded for us here in scripture in our world we are more likely to be preoccupied with another subject the subject of self we read about the autonomous self we're always talking about self-worth, self-esteem, self-expression like the famous ad campaign for a ladies cosmetic in which the key phrase was you're worth it. You are in fact worth it. We define ourselves by our sexual orientation, by the clothes we wear, by the beauty or otherwise of our bodies sometimes we judge our self-worth by our net worth and our self-appointed religious teachers are buying into the same preoccupation. Rob Bell, a familiar figure who was once evangelical and is no more, in his evangelical phase released a number of videos called NUMA videos which were used with university students. In one of them he talks about Peter walking on the water. you remember Peter's failure. He begins to sink. Rob Bell's comment was, it was a failure of faith and Jesus was saying to Peter you need to believe in yourself then you can do it just believe in yourself we make ourselves in a thousand ways the center of the world and when that happens a number of other things follow in its place first of all there is the trivialization of life Because as soon as you make yourself the center of your world and universe, then the universe itself begins to diminish all around you. Everything gets smaller, less significant. Nothing is solid. Nothing is substantial anymore. If you can just bear it to listen to some of our TV chat shows for a while, or read some of the popular magazines uh, at your local store, and ask yourself questions like, What is important in life? you will find that there is nothing grand, nothing great, nothing monumental, nothing meaningful. As far back as the 1980s Milan Kundera wrote a novel entitled The Unbearable Lightness of Being. In that novel he investigates the ambiguities the the ambiguities and contradictions of living in an empty universe. He follows five people their overlapping experience of random sexual encounters. He focuses on the elements of their lives, its laughter, its tears, its passions, its fears. And his conclusion is that the tragedy of life is that in the end everything vanishes. There is nothing or no one to whom we are or to which we are accountable. There is nothing by which to steer our path through life or evaluate our lives by. No measure by which we can judge what is good or bad, beautiful or ugly, worthy or unworthy. Nothing is truer, nothing is better, nothing is any more helpful. Life is trivial and passing. Along with the trivialization of life is the diminishing of self. Because as we make self the center of our lives, as we find self being that around which every policy, every pleasure, every penny is viewed the self we worship begins to diminish, gets smaller in our eyes. Even rich people, famous people, people of wealth and power, discover that that almost in proportion to the rise of the stuff that makes life important and meaningful to them, there is an almost proportionate deterioration in the gravitas and substance of who they are. A human self, you see cannot bear the weight of the world. The human self cannot bear the responsibility for the world and its woes. We are too small, too fragile to bear the weight that the world would put on us. And we diminish as a result. And with the diminishing of self comes the taming of God, especially in Christian circles. If you go online and you go to Christian bookstores online or you listen to radio programs or TV programs, apart from the usual good ones, apart from those, you will hear of a God who is remarkably like yourself. In fact, rather than discuss the first question of our catechism, what is the chief end of uh, of man, we ask, what is the chief end of God? And apparently the chief end of God is to serve me, to meet my needs. It's to answer my prayer the way I want my prayer answered immediately. To inflate my bank account, heal my common cold, grant me success to all my enterprises. Because once Christian people follow society and culture, once they make themselves, even as Christian people, the center of the world, then Christianity diminishes. Christianity becomes something less than it is. God is tamed. God dances to our tune. He meets my felt needs. And eventually theologians will rewrite the Christian story. And they'll leave out all the uncomfortable things. Imagine the wrath of God. Imagine language like me being a worm and, a, and a, a little thing and vile and full of sin I am. And all those words that we've edited out of the Trinity hymn book because they're offensive to us. Imagine. God becomes tame. And then there is the horizontalization of the church. I told you I was becoming more and more American. I'm making up bigger and bigger words. The horizontalization of the church. It's the way some of your neighbors sit that you just talked to earlier in the service would like to be once the sermon starts. Horizontal. Everything becomes flattened out. I heard of one church in London. They're thinking of taking out all the pews and putting in couches and having lattes instead. Cozy chats take the place of... Powerful preaching, Sunday gatherings, no longer are there for the worship of God since all of life is worship. Worship is flattened out to mean all the details of your life lived under the eye of God, which they are. But there is no place for the transcendent, no place for lifting up your eyes to the glory as we gather together Lord's Day by Lord's Day. We set the agenda We come together because we want entertained. Whether it's highbrow or lowbrow, it's the same thing. Or whether we want satisfaction, whether it's satisfaction aesthetically or emotionally, it's all about me. Some years ago, David Wells wrote a book called God in the Wasteland. He writes this, It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. That's W-E-I-G-H-T, weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticed. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less, than in- less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence or influence, His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. And as we've been reading Isaiah, we've discovered that the people of Jerusalem and Judah had found God resting inconsequentially upon them. They had thought really that their future was in their own hands. That they must take active moves in order to ensure their future rather than trusting in their God. what they needed to know was that their turning in on themselves and their trusting in their own wit and wisdom was in fact a statement of their rebellion against their maker. That in fact such people merit judgment. Such people merit that the lamp of witness be removed from that church or that people. The wrath of God should come upon such people as abandon their God. That's where chapter 39 ended. And then chapter 40 comes in with this most amazing statement that though they deserve the judicial punishment of God and though it would come on an earthly level at least and not, if not eternal God was now coming offering mercy we notice at the beginning of this chapter overtures of love and grace and offers of pardon there we find out that God's action on our behalf comes with a promise of the forgiveness of sins and all made possible because the glory of God that is the created expression of who God is in His character would come, personally come and we've discovered that that personal coming would be in the Messiah who is full of grace and truth this word of God to us this morning comes because it's possible that God is going to Himself open our eyes come to those who are captured by triviality and who are vanishing before their eyes he comes to establish the center once again and at the center a vision of God God the incomparable here is God speaking to his people who are wondering whether he was up to the tough stuff in their lives who are asking questions like can God save us? can he rescue us? does God have the power? or those who have been called to boldly proclaim the word of God and who are wondering whether it is worth pro- 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 proclaiming that word in a world that is so arrogantly denying God's name, wondering whether it's worth proclaiming or defending when society has turned against God. Only this week, a church plant which, which became a mega church in another American city which began in the PCA and ended up in the RCA, has decided that on certain matters of moral behavior, it knows better than God. And in the most appalling way, has abandoned the faith it once professed. All I want to say this morning, that this passage we've come to today, is for those who think the church needs to change, to suit the moral ethos of our day, to those who want to adjust the church's message to the consensus of the moment, to those who want Sundays to be merely emotionally satisfying like the typical evangelical jamboree, for those who wrestle with whether God will win in the end or whether God can save by grace alone through faith alone or whether God can, in fact, raise the dead and whether he will eventually transform the universe. I want to say to you that your view of God will or will not answer the questions that are raised. We find it hard to believe God. We find God's word hard to take seriously and we do so because we have small thoughts of God. Questions such as we face have already been introduced at the beginning of this chapter. Do we believe this great message? Are we worried? that it will be received well? Do we doubt that it has the power of God to make any difference? Are we afraid of proclaiming it unreservedly, lest it bring us into persecution? What we discover this morning as we come to verse 12 is that what we know of God will make the difference. And how do I come to a knowledge of God? In Scripture, the knowledge of God is not something I arrive at after my research it is not a matter of research or investigation or speculation the knowledge of God is something God Himself gives to us it is a gift it is revealed to us the knowledge of God comes from God by the work of the Holy Spirit speaking to us and then having it written down in Scripture To be heard by the church. That's a very careful definition. Knowledge of God comes from God. He takes the initiative, He introduces Himself, He makes the first moves towards us. The Holy Spirit reveals Him to us through the prophets and the apostles and what he reveals is captured in scripture this is this is the communication of God this is the word of God this scripture we have in our lap or on the on the rack in front of us or on my desk this scripture is God's word written and it's written and proclaimed to be heard by the church in other words there are tests to make sure you've heard it right The church is there to to make sure that we hear what is written in the word. We check one another. We check each other within the fellowship of the church, Catholic, universal, around the world and through time. That helps us in our interpretation of this word given, finally, in scripture by God. And what is the Bible given to us for? What does the Holy Spirit tell us from the Bible? The Holy Spirit wants us to know God that's how the Bible begins in the beginning God what is the great problem in the world defined in Scripture it's summed up by the Apostle Paul the world in its wisdom did not know God what is the fundamental issue between Jesus and the people of his day when he begins his public ministry well he says to them that he knows God but you have not known him in John chapter 8. Why is it important that I know God? Well, it's important that I know God because it's by knowing God that I understand myself. What is a human being? Are they just a naked ape or an evolutionary misfiring? What is sin? Is it something more than a temporary lapse or the politician's mistake or a psychological weakness? What is repentance? Is it a piece of religious chicanery designed to make normal people feel guilt? What is this great miracle that we celebrate at Christmas that God in Christ became a human being? Or at Easter that Christ was raised from the dead? Behind all of these questions and problems lies a major deficiency in our understanding of theology proper, that is, our knowledge of God. And once we grasp something of who God is, I don't think we'll ever wonder again about the sin problem, or the resurrection problem, or the incarnation problem, or the need for an atonement. Once you know who God is, you will not have struggles over the law of God or His promises, or over his power. You see, Isaiah, as he writes this, is addressing those who are struggling with the contradictions of life, who, who want reasons for what's wrong in life, who are overwhelmed by the failure of their past sins, who, who wonder at how few people there are believe when masses do not, or who feel like they have nothing to say to those who dismiss their faith as a fairy tale or a fantasy. We have difficulty with those questions because we think that God is altogether like ourselves. Now, I want you to notice that in this text that we're studying, the focus is not on the prophet's doubts or the believer's questions or the skeptic's complaints. The focus lies not there. That would be to take unbelief too seriously. Or the doubts, the questions, and the complaints are all there in the text. But they're in the margins. The doubts, the questions, and the complaints will be taken seriously by God as He interacts with us. But they are in the margins of the text. They're not at the center. That would be far too anthropocentric to have them at the center. As Professor Brever Childs puts it, In his commentary in Isaiah, the form of this text is unremittingly theocentric. God is at the center. We're being asked to consider God, to listen to God, to see God, to view God. And there we have this catalog of God's capacities and characteristics to encourage us that God is well able to help us. You would not believe that that's the introduction to the text. Because we're listening to God now, describing himself. He's, he's engaging in a dispute with us. A kind of disputation in which he's asking questions of us. Who has measured the waters, that is the oceans, all the waters of the world, in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens, that is put them in their place, by the span of his hand? Who can put all the dust of the earth in a measure a half cup or a quarter cup or a full cup who could weigh the mountains on a scale or the hills in a balance do you notice these are ridiculous questions these are ridiculous questions he's asking us could anybody do that of course that's ridiculous it's ridiculous even to consider it and yet here is the here is God through the prophet piling up words and phrases that underline craftsmanship that embrace the totality of all that there is measured, marked off, enclosed measure, weighed, scales, balance waters, earth, waters, heavens, dust, mountains, everything in the hollow of his hand marked out with the span of a hand. That's between your, the point of your thumb and the point of your little finger. God is saying, this is how I marked out where to put the universe. Can you imagine that? Which of you could do that? You could hold your span of your hand against the heavens one night and you're only going to embrace a few galaxies maybe. Here is the God who made the universe. And the language he uses, you notice, is all the language of exact workmanship, easy, competence, effortless, power. He's asking us to look at the natural world and be amazed at what we see there. He is telling us that God is not like us. He measured out the entire universe, euphemistically, if he had a hand, with the span of his hand, a thousand billion galaxies. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that if got of a hand that they would fit in that space? Can you imagine? The prophet is using these verbs appropriate to a craftsman, constructing an object, measuring, enclosing, weighing. The analogy with a human craftsman is absolutely absurd. That's the point. That's the point. And he's issuing a challenge. Who has? And the only answer is, no one has. No one has. He's pointing us to the fact that God is not like us. Here we are this morning and we are contingent beings. Our lives are contingent on other factors being equal having the right amount of oxygen in our atmosphere, having the right amount of gravity that we don't float off into space, the blood circulating in a certain way in our bodies, and you not being hit by a car on Spruce Street as you leave. Our lives are contingent. God is not a contingent being. His being is not contingent in anything outside of Him. The whole emphasis of the Bible is that there was a time when there was nothing else but God. There was nothing created. There was God. There was no created thing. God existed from all eternity. God is in and of Himself. As uh, Francis Territon puts it in his, in his great dogmatics, nothing existed outside of God before creation. The world came about from nothing, supernaturally, through infinite power as from a terminus, as from a terminus quo, out of nothing. Or Wilhelmus Abrackel, a Dutch theologian, by the it came about by the exercise of omnipotent power, by a singular verbal command of God and his omnipotent will without the least exertion. I think of my father shouting, "Chinti," And my mother coming through with his cup of tea. And without any effort, there was the cup of tea in his hand. I've never been able to get Christine to do that. (laughs) I wouldn't even try. God, by the power of his word, makes things that are not be, you see. That's the point. He says, let there be light. And there was light. When we're assailed by doubts, we need to ponder the fact that God is the one who speaks. And creates by his speech. When in our petulance we complain about our lot in life, we should consider the one about whom we are complaining. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The person who doesn't have the Spirit of God, a natural person, without the Spirit of God and therefore unable to see spiritually, finds themselves offended by this kind of thing. They are anathema to him. And yet here we have the statement of God. Francis Schaeffer was right when he said that a person cannot become a Christian unless they bow twice. Once bowing to God as creator, and then secondly, bowing to God as redeemer in Christ. Psalm 33, in verse 6 we read this, he By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the word of the Lord. This Old Testament miracle of miracles is creation. In the New Testament, the miracle of miracles is the incarnation. This is the power of God. And underlying it is the doctrine of the omnipotence, the almightiness, the greatness of God's power, which is a frequent cause of praise whenever you read the Bible. You see, if you don't start here, then you never understand the gospel. You don't start with creation. Richard Swinburne was an Oxford scientist. He wrote this, The existence of a complex physical universe over finite or infinite time is something too big for science to explain using scientific explanations alone. Doing that, it would remain a brute, inexplicable fact. It can only be explained, he goes on to say, by a personal explanation. In other words, that there is some mind behind the universe. What does omnipotence mean? It presupposes God's absolute freedom to act as he pleases. You have Job saying, he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. Amen. Or in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Amen. Or later on in Isaiah, or earlier on in Isaiah chapter 14, As I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will ul it God's absolute freedom to do what God wants to do in and out in and outside of the universe as we know it. One of the implications of this means that there is nothing too hard for God. Not only can he do what he wants to do, there's nothing too hard for him to do, which means that all things are possible for him. So when this God comes to Abraham tells him, that although his wife is barren and he's old, and the two of them are really pretty aged, he's going to have a child. Uh, Abraham uh, wand- wonders, he doubts, and, unbel- and his wife doubts. And the angel says to him, Is there anything too hard for the Lord? When the angel comes to Mary, tells her of the miraculous conception of the Savior in her womb, and she says, No way, the angel says, nothing will be impossible with God. When God leads them through the Red Sea, the children of Israel, we read in Exodus 15, when they got to the other side, they sang together, Who is like thee, O Lord, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. This God is power. This is God's universal, personal control of all reality. His fully present lordship in all of life. His unbounded authority and control. The power of God. The power of God. And you have to see that this is all over the scriptures. You think of the great names for God. El, Elohim, El Shaddai, all of them. With this major idea of power God is power or phrases that are used of God throughout the scriptures he is great and powerful he is the mighty one of Israel he is great and mighty great and mighty is he he is the Lord of armies the Lord of hosts the ruler the owner the overlord the king you think of these titles applied in the New Testament To the great king, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the lord almighty, the blessed and only sovereign. He creates, he sustains the universe, he leaves us speechless. This is what Paul is getting at when he talks about the gospel, do you remember? He's talking about the gospel in the world and he says this about the people of the world. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. The world has a book about God in nature. The world has a book about God in nature that it reads every day. And the book of nature tells the world, God is Big and God is mighty. God is strong. God is powerful. God can do anything. God is free. He is the only free being in the universe, free to do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants, as He pleases. God is great. God is great. There is nothing too hard for God. Do you believe that? Christian friend, do you believe that? The scripture tells us this. Because when the Lord Jesus comes into the world, he demonstrates the attributes of God. Do you remember the disciples are on that boat? And Jesus comes to them in the middle of the storm. He comes to them. They're terrified they're going to die. They're afraid they're going to die. The storm has come and whipped up that little Lake Galilee. It's Surrounded by mountains, the wind comes down, and it becomes a cauldron of water, we're told, in the middle of a storm. Jesus comes, you remember, and he speaks. Tells the storm to be quiet. The storm stops. But the most amazing thing to the disciples was that not only did the storm stop, but the waves stopped. You take a bowl of water, you shuggle it up a bit. That's the Scottish word, shuggle. You kind of shake it up a bit. Like this. And you'll find you know the water splashing all over the place. Then put it down still. It will continue to move around for some time. A storm stops, the water doesn't stop. Sometimes for hours. You're still getting the after-effects of waves that are being produced by the storm. Jesus silences the storm, and the lake goes perfectly still. And the disciples of Jesus are terrified. They were afraid of the storm. They're terrified about Jesus. Why? Because flooding into their mind come these psalms that they've been singing in their synagogues and in the church services of their day. And as they've been singing these songs about how it's only God who silences the storm and calms the water. They began to realize that this one they were getting to know had the very attributes and qualities that only God Himself has. And no wonder then that the gospel is all about God. Paul, when he's writing to the Ephesians, begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? He says in First Timothy, it is the glorious gospel of the blessed God. What is the function of the gospel? It is that he might reveal to us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And all of this, my dear beloved friends, is this. If you're a Christian person, this is the message of Isaiah 40. This God is for you. He is for you in that he is on your side and he's for you. He makes himself available to you in Christ. He comes with his promises, do you see? He comes with his promises and repeats those promises over and over again to us. If God be for us, who can be against us? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There's the reality. This God is for you. It is by the power of this God, as you read the New Testament, that God raised Jesus from the dead. It is by the power of God that he brings you to saving faith and that he strengthens you in your faith. It's this powerful God that enables him to give to you more than you could ever ask or think in answer to your prayers. And it is this God who will, by his power, raise you up on the last day. This God is for you. He is on your side. He is your God. He is your God. This is our God. Don't think small miniature thoughts of God. Think of those hundred thousand galaxies that he measured with the span of his hand. And think that with that same hand he reaches out to wipe your tears. He reaches out to embrace you and bring you in like a prodigal son and set a party for you. Think of this, God is for you. For you. Somehow or other, self diminishes. God is great. Let's pray. Father... We pray that you would lift up our eyes to behold you in all the greatness of your omnipotent power. You are not like us. Which makes it all the more remarkable that in Christ you took on our humanity so that you could be with us. In a physical created way, be with us. That's an amazing part of the gospel. And we pray that today you'd help us to get our heads around those two realities. We ask it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.